if you're like me, you may not have had the best sleep last night in the heat. So let's ask God uh, to help us concentrate and understand his word. Please pray with me. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray uh, in our tiredness and in the oppression of the heat, you will grant us grace to concentrate. Help us to hear your word, to understand it, and to know how to apply it to our thinking and our lives. And help me in my weakness to speak your word faithfully and truthfully in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you may have heard uh, the parable of the blind man and the elephant. You know, it starts off with a king asking five men, to five blind men, to describe an elephant which was in front of them. Plainly a very passive, docile elephant. And so one said, feeling the trunk, oh, an elephant is a strong, flexible, muscular tube. Another, feeling the tusk, said, oh, no, 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 an elephant is smooth, hard, fixed and sharp. Another standing near the ear said, no, no, you're both wrong. An elephant is a source of soothing breezes. And another, spreading his hands across the sides of the elephant, said, how could you think that? An elephant is vast, tough and full of creases. And I won't say what the one under the tail concluded, but again it was different from the others. And this, so the story goes, is like people, like the religions with God. Every religion is really talking about the same God, but each religion's like the blind man with insight into only a small part of God's totality. Each religion's error has been in thinking that they alone have exclusive insight into the nature of God, have the truth because God is so much greater than any particular person's insights. And we should just, they say, all recognise that and take the insights from each and not claim exclusive truth for any. It's actually a very famous story, but it's very deceptive at two levels. Firstly, it assumes that the religious pluralist, the one who says, oh, let's take the good from all but not claim truth for any, it suggests that the religious pluralist amongst all the blind is the king, the one who sees, who can really see the whole elephant and so know that each person's description was partial and incomplete. So we find them claiming for themselves what they deny all others, the exclusive truth. But secondly and more importantly, it assumes God is passive sitting there like that docile elephant, just waiting to be discovered, happy to be poured over by the curious and then misrepresented by the ignorant. But what if that were not the case? What if God, who, after all, if he is God, gave us minds that could understand and made speech and gave us larynxes? And what if God spoke, made himself known, told us the truth about himself, well, that story doesn't consider that possibility because it would destroy the case of those using it to deny the truth claims of all and any religion in the name of finding a way to tolerate them all. You see, they know that if God spoke, that would be the end to all speculation and that what God told us of himself would be the truth about himself beyond contradiction. God's spirit invisible, so he can't be known by observation. He's almighty, and so he doesn't give anything away that he does not want to reveal. 
And he is of infinite knowledge, including knowledge of himself. Only he can be the true source of knowledge of himself. Human observations couldn't compete. They'll always be partial, limited, incomplete. But if God spoke, well, that would settle the issue. It would settle the issue of his existence, for sure. And it would also settle the issue of his being. What he said about himself would be true and right. And all views not in accord with what he had spoken would be false and wrong. In fact, what God said would not just be true about himself. What God said about anything, ourselves, our world, would be true, for he alone knows the whole. All our knowledge, whether of ourselves or our world, is limited, finite always, because we are finite, limited in space, in time, in understanding. Oh, we know parts of the puzzle, but not the whole. When we're trying to make sense of things, it's like we're trying to piece together a jigsaw, but we don't have the box, the completed picture, and we don't even know how many pieces there are. And so we find it hard to put even one piece in the puzzle with certainty. And that's true not just of our knowing of the world, where science is always adding and adjusting, reformulating to accommodate new knowledge. It's actually true of our knowledge of ourselves. One example. You don't even know what will be the outcome of any one decision you make. And we're making lots of decisions every day, but take a simple decision. You decide, I'm going to drive down to the shops. What will follow? Oh, your purpose may be clear to get the groceries, but what will follow from that decision? Will that be the only outcome, getting the groceries? You don't know. You can't know. I mean, you might decide I'm going to drive down to the shops and get run into as you drive out of your driveway. Oh, you might be going to the shops and the car might break down in this heat because the water pump's developed a leak. You might be moving in from the car park into the mall and run into an old friend who insists on taking you to lunch and that leads to planning a reunion and through renewing old friendships you get involved with a charity and you end up trekking the Kokoda Trail. Or you might, being single, start up a conversation with the person on the checkout and find your life partner or have your heart broken. You might, by your purchases, contribute to oppressive conditions in a third world country that lead over time to massive unrest and the destabilisation of that country and a wave of refugees, one of whom will become your next door neighbour in years to come and whose son will marry your daughter. You don't know the outcome of any one decision you make. But if God spoke, see, he knows all the pieces of the jigsaw. He actually has the big picture. The box is his. He knows the future. He knows the end from the beginning. He can tell you what the outcome of your decision will be, what the outcome of any decision will be. And so he can tell you what will make life flourish and prosper and what will bring harm and destruction. If God speaks, what he says will be true in a way that any merely human word cannot be. If God speaks, you could know the truth about God and about yourself, who you are and what you are here for. Oh, you could know the truth about right and wrong. You could know the truth about what makes for a life of flourishing and what will bring misery. It would make all the difference, wouldn't it, if God spoke. 
And this is what the author of Hebrews claims to have happened. Not just once, but at many times in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. This, of course, is the claim of all biblical faith. God has spoken. What we believe and say about God is not made up by us. It's been spoken by God. He has taken the initiative to make himself and his will known. The author of Hebrews, who is unknown to us, but someone as far as we can tell from the end of the book associated with Paul's companion, Timothy, and someone who is very well acquainted with the Greek Old Testament. The author of Hebrews is referring his listeners, for Hebrews was written to be read out loud, to the Old Testament when he says, in the past God spoke to our ancestors. In saying God has spoken, he's actually summarising what the Old Testament claims for itself. The prophets here are not confined to what we might call prophets like Isaiah. No, no, the whole Old Testament is considered here as prophetic, where God spoke repeatedly to some for all, where God spoke to Adam in the garden, to Abraham with the promises that shaped Israel's history, to Moses giving him the law of God for the people, to David giving Israel the songs of their worship. Oh, and yes, the Old Testament claims God continued to speak to the people through the prophets he sent, like Elijah or Isaiah or Malachi, prophets who spoke saying, thus says the Lord, speaking the very words of God. And this happened at many times, over centuries and in various ways as we can see in our Old Testament by narrative, inspired history, poetry, acted parables, proverbs and wisdom writings, love songs and yes, prophecy. And it was God speaking to the people through his messengers and servants whether the people listened or not. Often they didn't listen, but God had spoken. God spoke to our forefathers. That's a big claim, isn't it, that God has spoken? And it's the first of many the book of Hebrews will make. But let's just think again about what it means for God to have spoken to see how big a claim it is. You see, it's saying that amongst all the words that we hear that swirl around us from the moment we're born, from the moment we wake up every day, it means that amongst all the words that we hear, there is a word which is true. True for all people at all times, for God is the God of all. A word which, whether speaking of God or of ourselves or of how we should live or even of the future, would be utterly reliable. True in a way in which no merely human word could be true, for it comes from the one who knows all things and can do all things, and so can fulfil everything he has said. Oh yes, and it's a word which will be clear, for God speaks with a purpose. See that, Isaiah 55 verse 11. His word will accomplish what I desire, and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. He's the almighty God. He doesn't speak a confused word but a word that serves his purpose, one that will draw his people into relationship with himself and leave without excuse those who refuse to listen. If God speaks, we have a true word, a clear word, and yes, if God speaks, it would mean that we have a word which has authority. God's word brings creation into being, and God's word 
has the power to conform reality to itself. What it says is the way things are and will be. God's word, yes, can be denied, but it cannot be withstood in the end. Its judgments will stand. It has authority. And so do you start to see what a blessing it is that the creator, God, speaks? It can bring clarity to our lives, to our choices. It can give us a common understanding of right and wrong that accords with reality. Oh, it can free us from the morass of relativism, from right and wrong dependent on how someone feels. It can free your choices from being determined by how you feel. It frees you to be guided by what is right and what will be vindicated by God as right. It gives you a sure guide. If God has spoken, it actually means you can know yourself, start to understand yourself, for what it says of you is true, and it means that you can know the true and living God, the one who has created and rules all in whom is life. For God to have spoken is a blessing and a gift to his creatures. Yet because what God says is true, clear and authoritative, God's speaking will always be resisted by creatures who want to assert their own rule in the place of God's. For the word God speaks will always stand against creatures who want to rebel against God's rule. It will always be there denying their claims and their judgments, saying no to their pride. It will always be there calling them to humble themselves confess they are creatures, not God, and that their word does not rule, but his. It's a big claim to say God has spoken, and a divisive claim. But it is a reasonable claim for those who had received the Old Testament to make, for the Jewish people to make. You see, that word they'd received, that God had spoken to them in the past, whether the promises to Abraham or the law given at Sinai, had formed their nation and life. And they'd seen, for example, the curses and blessings of the law worked out in their society and lives. And they'd seen the prophetic work vindicated over and over again in their history in God's judgments and salvations. Again, one example. The prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel had all prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Isaiah making that prophecy over a hundred years before it happened. And they didn't just prophesy the big event, they prophesied the details. And in Jeremiah and Ezekiel's case, they made those prophecies in the face of contemporary denials of what they were saying and of that judgment. And yet, Jerusalem was destroyed just as they said. And then, more wonderfully, those prophets also prophesied the return of the Jews from Babylon to Jerusalem. Isaiah, hundreds of years before, had spoken of the role of the Persian Cyrus in that return. He named someone not yet born, not yet thought of, who would allow the return of the exiles from Babylon to Jerusalem. Jeremiah had prophesied to the exiles in Babylon the number of years of their captivity, 70. And that return took place. The exiles returned from Babylon to Jerusalem and it took place exactly as Isaiah and Jeremiah had said it would. 
Oh, and as the author will show in the rest of the book, much of what the prophets had foretold has now been fulfilled in the life and death and rising of Jesus. God has vindicated his word in history. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors. It's a profound way to start a letter, isn't it? But actually, is Hebrews a letter? It's not like the other New Testament letters, is it? It doesn't start with the author's greetings. Perhaps we should think more of this letters, of this book in terms of the author's own description there in chapter 13, 22. He calls it there a word of exhortation, a sermon, a, a homily, a written sermon to be read out loud in the congregation with some features of a letter at the end. This is actually a profound way to start his sermon. God spoke. But he does it for a purpose. You see, God speaking in the past in the Old Testament was what his original hearers took for granted. And he directs them to what they took for granted to focus them on what he wants to talk about, the greatness and the finality of God speaking in Jesus. You see, no one's quite sure of who the original recipients of this word of exhortation are. It's clear from the letter that they're people from a Jewish background, very familiar with the Greek Old Testament, who have now become believers in Jesus. And it also appears from the letter that they've suffered and continue to be under pressure for their commitment to Jesus. But their exact location and their circumstances, exact circumstances, are not spelled out. But wherever they were, they believed the Old Testament to be God's word. And they have accepted the gospel of Jesus as God's word. Although some, as we see in the letter, are starting to wonder if it's worth persevering in believing in Jesus, whether what God has said to them in Jesus is worth suffering for. And so the author starts this sermon by emphasising the distinctness and importance of this word from God spoken in Jesus, this gospel word, by a series of contrasts that you see in verses 1 and 2. So there's a contrast in timing, what God said of old with what God said in these last days. There's a contrast of recipients to the fathers, to us. And most importantly, there's a contrast in the messenger, the many prophets over the centuries but now, he says, God has spoken in the Son. So a contrast in timing. He says that God has now spoken in the Son in these last days. Now when the author says this, he's not claiming insight to God's timetable as if he knew when the end would be. He's not making a chronological but a theological observation which is why the last days can continue for almost 2,000 years, as they have. You see, the last days was a phrase used in the Greek Old Testament to refer to a future time when God's prophecies of judgment and salvation would be fulfilled. By using the phrase, the author is saying that the future time the prophets spoke of has arrived in the events of Jesus' life and ministry, his death, resurrection and giving of the Spirit. Already things prophesied of the end have taken place. Examples, they prophesied of the resurrection. There's resurrection in Jesus. They prophesied of the gift of the Spirit in the last days and the Spirit was poured out. They prophesied of the nations turning to God. 
and the nations were turning to God in believing in Jesus. But of course that was not all of what was spoken of in the prophets that would occur in the future. <laughs> there yet remains the judgment and the new heaven and earth to come that they'd spoken of. But the end has begun because of Jesus. Resurrection, gift of the Spirit, the turning of the nations. And because the end has begun in Jesus, there is nothing more to do but await the completion, the consummation of what Jesus has begun. The last days is a way of speaking of our time that brings home the finality of God's dealings with humanity in Jesus and the finality of the revelation given in Jesus. You see, there is no other event in God's timetable before the end, no other salvation to be revealed because the end has started. The last days are here. And this revelation in the last days, says the author, has been given to us. Now, who are the us? Well, at one level, it's the first hearers, believers in Jesus from a Jewish background. But from the author's perspective, the us is bigger. The us are all those who, like the first hearers, have come to believe in Jesus through the testimony of the first witnesses whose testimony was confirmed by God by signs and wonders and miracles. You see there, Hebrews 2.3, this salvation which was first announced by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So there's the Lord, there's those who heard him, and then there's us. And in this, the most important respect, you and I are in exactly the same position as the first readers of Hebrews. Oh, we haven't heard Jesus ourselves. We depend on those whom Jesus has appointed as witnesses, his ear witnesses, eye witnesses. Just as the author can say that the word spoken by God in his Son has been spoken to his first readers through the testimony of the apostles, so actually the word spoken by God in his Son has been spoken to us, to you and I, in exactly the same way. We, today, are the us the author is addressing Oh, and this word has been spoken not by the prophets, but by his son. And that, as the author will show, makes this word of unrivaled importance and the final word God speaks to the world. The author goes on to tell us several things about the son. So we and the first hearers would grasp how important the word of the son is and that there will be no other word for the importance and finality of the word God speaks to us in the Son springs from the importance of the Son, who he is and what he has done. And it's that which the author will tell us about. And so, firstly, verse 2, uh, we're told of the Son's relation to creation and God's purposes for creation. The Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son, Jesus, is the heir of all things. That is, everything belongs to Jesus, the present and the future. He is the King of Psalm 2, to whom all the nations are given. And he comes to this through his obedience in suffering on the cross. It's after he has made purification for sins that he sits down at the right hand of God, that he inherits all rule and authority. 
And it is right that all things are his because he is the one through whom all things are made, the ages, all things. And so his rule is not imposed on creation as alien but comes to creation as right and natural for he knows all creation is the maker. In him creation has its origin and finds its purpose and its history is embraced in God's purpose for his son. But if he is the heir, then there is no one else to come to whom rule of creation will be given. There is no future king beyond him. And secondly, we're told of the son's relation to the father. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. In these two phrases, we're assured that the revelation God makes of himself in his son is sure and true. That in Jesus, we come to know all we can come to know of God. And so he says he is the radiance of God's glory. Now, God's glory is the manifestation of his being, as humans can perceive it. And it's in Jesus that we perceive God's glory, his goodness and greatness. You see, just as it is through the radiance of the sun in the sky that we experience the sun, that's right, we experience the sun, don't we, through its light and heat that radiate from it, so the author is saying we experience God through his son, Jesus. And actually, that is the only way to experience God. See, think about it. We cannot experience the sun directly, can we, without being shriveled, right? But we do experience it through its radiance. And the sun in the sky, experienced through its radiance, becomes a source of life and joy to us. In the same way, we cannot experience God directly without being consumed. Yet through the sun, the radiance of God's glory, knowing God becomes a source of life and joy to us. Oh, and like the radiance of the sun, God's son Jesus is in unbroken connection with the Father. There's nothing between him and the Father, no barrier that might create a distortion in his representation of the Father. The author assures us that what we actually experience in knowing Jesus in his word is truly an experience of God, an accurate revelation of his character. He says the son is the exact representation of his being. That's saying Jesus conveys the representative traits of God, the things in a sense that make God God to us. In looking at Jesus, God can be truly known. And that's really exciting when you see Jesus take those little children in his arms, isn't it? Or when he touches the leper. That's, that's it. It, when you look at Jesus, God is truly known. And you can't know more of God than you know in Jesus. He is the exact representation. Every other claim that departs from Jesus will be a distortion. But Jesus conveys God, his essential nature to us accurately. And he does that in his person, not just with words. And notice the author stresses that Jesus always is the radiance of God's glory, who being the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus does not become this exact representation of God. He is. 
Oh, and he is, even as we'll see later in the book, he learns obedience through suffering. He is, even on the cross, the exact representation of God's being and the radiance of his glory. Because of who Jesus is, because of his unique relationship to the Father, you cannot know more of God than you know through Jesus. And the God you know in Jesus, the God who speaks in Jesus, is truly God. Thirdly, the author tells us of the Son's relationship to the continuation of creation. It says he is the one who upholds or sustains all things, verse 3, by his powerful word. When on earth, as now in heaven, the Son is always intimately involved in his creation. The universe is sustained by his personal and powerful word. That's right, at the heart of the universe is not some unthinking blind mechanism, but the Son. Your life depends on him. And God's purposes in his creation are being constantly carried forward by him. And so the Son is relevant to all. He's the Lord of all and the only one by whom those purposes will be fulfilled. Fourthly, the author tells us of the Son's relation to our cleansing. After he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So right at the front of the book, he, he tells us something that he's going to expand on at length in this book of Hebrews, especially chapters 7 to 10. He tells us that the Son, Jesus, is the one who has fully and finally made those who believe the gospel fit to live with the holy God. He is the one who has made purification for sin. That is, Jesus, by the sacrifice of himself, has removed the defilement of our sin. You know, our sin, our ignoring, our rejecting, our disobeying God by our ignoring, rejecting and disobeying his word. Well, Jesus, by the sacrifice of himself, has removed the offence of our sin in God's sight forever so that those who are cleansed by Jesus are fit to live with God, can come into his presence, can seek his help and grace. Now, that is something the author says that Jesus has done in history and is finished. The note of finality, of completion of that cleansing work is stressed. It, it may not come out in the English, but the main verb of this sec section is actually he sat down. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down. And that's stunning. You see, the priests who made sacrifices always stood in God's presence. The angels in scripture are always portrayed as standing in God's presence. But this phrase, he sat down, tells us both of the son's glory, his exaltation because of his work, and also that that work is finished. Having made the one sacrifice which is effective for all time, he sat down. And he remains enthroned because he has nothing more to do to cleanse and purify his people. There needs to be no repetition of that sacrifice. And his people need no one else to fit us to come to God. And of course no one else can. 
For no one else, as the book of Hebrews will show us, can make the sacrifice Jesus has made, the sacrifice of himself. And finally, the author says, speaks of the son's superiority to the angels. And here, of course, we start the rest of the book, the argument, sorry, of the rest of the book, uh, the superiority of the son, which we'll get into really next week when we start to think about the angels. But the author will tell us the son is superior to all, to the angels, to Moses and Joshua, to the Levitical priesthood given by God. He is superior because he is in himself greater. He makes a better sacrifice. He brings a better covenant. And so we should hold on to him. But what can we say of the character of the revelation God gives in the Son? In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. Well, what God has spoken of the Son is final, isn't it? It's the climax of God's revealing of himself because it's the climax of his promised salvation, of his purposes for creation. The Son is the heir, Jesus, enthroned already. So there's no other saving king to come. Oh, and you'll never be able to know more of God than you can know in the Son, the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his being, and you don't need to know more of God than you know in the Son, for he has made purification for sin. Our sin has been dealt with. He has brought us back to God once and for all. So this is the final word because there can be no greater than the Son and no one else can do what the Son has done. And this word is true. This revelation of God in the Son is true because the Son is in unbroken connection with the Father. There's no distortion. Oh, and the word spoken is a word that's actually being vindicated in history, in the crucifixion and resurrection and exaltation of the Son. And this is a word that will fulfil the word of God that has already been spoken to his people in the past. This is a true word. And this is a good word spoken to us by God in the Son. You see, in the Son, the word of God that always stands against us, that condemns our pride in opposing God and substituting our words and judgments for his, is revealed to be the word that will also save us. This is a gracious word, a word that brings pardon, cleansing from sin, full and complete, cleansing for those who have, by their rejection of God's word, defiled themselves, made them unfit for his presence, cleansing for all, whatever their race or nation or language, who will trust God speaking in his son. This is a good word and it is unique. It is in the end a word unlike any other for the son is unique in his person and his work. And so, and this is the point, believers must never abandon this word, the word God has spoken to us in his son or confuse it and they have to reject all who seek to add to it. Like those first hearers, we live in the last days. The word spoken by God in the Son is spoken to us just as much as it was to the first recipients of this book. Oh, and as we'll find, we need to hear this word because believers today face the same pressures as they did. 
pressures to drift away, to neglect this final saving word, to be lazy in growing in this word, to abandon the word spoken by God in the Son. This book of Hebrews is a word of exhortation that we will need to hear and pay attention to. But actually, this word that God has spoken in his Son is a word for all. The Son is ruler over all and sustains the life of all. That's right, sustains your life, even if you are not yet a believer in Jesus. This is the word of God for us all to listen to and to keep on listening to. And that's right, isn't it? For when God, our creator, speaks, we should listen and believe. Oh, and yes, like every word that God has spoken, it will be a confronting word. It will challenge us. It will challenge our thought that, well, we can believe what we like about God and the world. No, no, it'll say no. It'll confront, for example, our claim that there are many ways to God, only one. It'll challenge our thought that we can believe what we like about right and wrong, do what we feel is right. No, it'll challenge that and tell us that God is never indifferent to how we live and he has given his sure word to reveal what is right. This word will challenge us. But the word God has spoken in his Son is a better word than we deserve, isn't it? This is a word that promises forgiveness and life and inclusion in the Son's eternal kingdom. This is a word which even now offers real relationship, real access to the living and holy God, real help in our need that speaks that word to us because the Son gives his life in love for us. A confronting word, a word that is better than we deserve, a word for all. And so if you're unsure whether the living God has spoken to us in his Son, if you're thinking about it on the one hand, feeling the threat to your autonomy of hearing God speak and yet seeing how good it would be to hear God speak, to know the truth, to know right, to know God. And if you're unsure, come and talk. God has vindicated the word he has spoken in his son by raising him from the dead in history. He's not afraid of scrutiny. Examine the evidence. Talk with us. But if you are sure, if you're saying, yes, I believe that, I believe God has spoken to us in his son, well then, ask yourself today and over the coming weeks, is the Jesus I trust the big Jesus of Hebrews? Right? The heir of all things, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, the Jesus I cheerfully worship. Is he the big Jesus that I serve or have I constricted Jesus to, in a sense, the boundaries of my own life? Oh, and ask yourself, do I know I have God's final word to humanity in him so that there's nowhere else I or anyone else can go to know God? And ask yourself, knowing that, that this is God's final word spoken to us in his son, knowing that, am I determined to hold fast to him, to grow in my knowledge of him, to suffer for him, to obey him. Because, you know, this word, 
the book of Hebrews will call you to do all that, to hold fast, to grow, to suffer, to obey, and to draw near to him for grace to do that. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed the heir of all things through whom he's created the world. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, upholding all things by his word of power and having made purification for our sins, he has sat down. Is that the Jesus you come to worship week by week? The Jesus you trust with your life? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so often preoccupied with our own concerns and the horizons of our lives are so constricted. But we pray in your mercy as we listen to you, you would let Jesus grow big in our minds and hearts so that we would trust him as we ought so that we would praise him as he deserves, so that we would live for him and die for him in our daily choices every day. Please help us grow in our knowledge of him and give us grace to hold fast to him. We ask this in his name. Amen.